0: Church families, we continue to worship today. I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Psalm 13 this morning. Psalm 13 this morning. This has been a heavy week for our nation. It's been a, a week of deep sorrow where grief has, has been ever present. The horrific tragedy that all of us know about at Rob Elementary at Uvalde, Texas, and this past Tuesday, is, is close to our hearts. Tuesday afternoon, I did not see all the details of this. It was only Tuesday evening that it began to dawn on me exactly what had happened. At the conclusion of the night at the Eldridge household for 16 years, we've had this routine to, to sing to our boys at the, the final thing that, that we do. My two oldest boys, they've, they've sort of graduated from, from, from that at this point. But my youngest son, he still calls for us and says, Dad, Mom, sing me a song. And it was about 9.45 Tuesday evening where I was in my my fourth grade son's room, singing to him, holding him close, realizing the pain and the grief that's unimaginable of 19 moms and dads that would not be able to do that. It was Tuesday evening. Real grief. Sunday evening I couldn't sleep because a few hours before I, on my iP- iPad was walking through a report that was issued that chronicled the injustice of sexual abuse victims and the malament that they received, the mishandling of cases from the Southern Matters Convention Executive Committee, and just the weight of, of, of that pain of those survivors and what they have experienced. And outrage, the frustration. It kept me up. And I realized that this week there needed to be a word to us as a people because I would be, I was at the grocery store just a few days ago and someone came to me and with tears in their eyes they said, uh, Pastor, do you, do you have a word? I, I cannot get over Tuesday. Do you have a word? For me. Anything comforting? I'm just gonna be honest, it's in moments like this that, that our words fall really short. Right? We live in a tweetable society where we want to succinctly state everything in this sort of infinite wisdom and 140 characters and sing it out and shout it out, and then you know, our Instagram posts, and that will solve everything. And and these kinds of events where where we're just reminded that we live in a sin-soaked world. Our words seem to be insufficient. But it's in these scenarios that we're reminded that the Word of God gives us words when our words fall short. That we have in 150 Psalms a companion for even the darkest of days. In 150 Psalms, we span the full range of human emotions. You have the Psalms of Thanksgiving, which just drip from the Bible with gratitude. The words drip off the page with gratitude to God and for the community of believers. These are the psalms of gratitude and psalms of thanksgiving. They're psalms of praise where where joy and jubilation are on the tongue of the worshiper and they're there for us. But there's another category of psalms category that is the most common of all of the Psalms, but is probably the most distant to us in the 21st century, and it's called the Psalms of Lament. And God has given us in the Psalms of Lament words from Him to express our our heartfelt grief and anguish. When words fall short, our words fall short. The Psalms of Lament are a whole theme of Psalms that you find most common of all here that express the raw emotions of the heart. The Psalms of Lament are are the honest cries to God in the midst of deep distress, in in the midst of deep despair, It's a a cry for God for intervention to deliver those from suffering and sorrow and from loss and from failures and from the enemies that surround them and are all around them. They're the most common of all the Psalms, but I would say most of us are not as familiar because our default is to go to the Psalms of thanksgiving, to go to the Psalms of praise, because we want to live in a land with joy and jubilation, right? With gratitude and thanksgiving, in deep distress and pain and loss and heartache, uh, we, 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 we would, would rather bypass that exit. When I was a young Christian, I, I didn't have the words to describe this. Uh, th- these are only words that I have now looking back upon my journey as a Christian. The only concept I had of a theology of the Christian life was sort of a shiny, happy people theology of the Christian life. When I became a Christian, I don't know if someone told me this or I just intuited this, that that with Jesus, you should be happy all the time, regardless of the circumstances. If you're a follower of Jesus, upbeat, everything is awesome, everything is good. That should be sort of the walk that you have in life. That's really what I thought until I experienced real tragedy and real grief in my own life. Then it was the Psalms of lament that walked with me. And there I realized that followers of God and followers of Jesus for thousands of years have turned to passages like Psalm 13, probably the most familiar and most famous of the Psalms of Lament, when their words fall short and when all is not right in their heart nor in the world. And when the brokenness of the world encroaches upon you, it's the word of the Lord that speaks to us with such clarity. Hear the word of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O oh, Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 is a psalm of lament that gives us a pattern to trace when words fail us. And all that is appropriate is the lament before God. It is an invitation first to bring your honest questions before God. You are met with five question marks at the outset of Psalm 13. And that is five more question marks than most of us in our prayer languages are, are comfortable with. We want to talk to God with periods and most often with exclamation points. We want to revel in God's presence. We want to revel in his goodness. We want to worship him. That's what we feel is most appropriate when we talk to God. That when you talk to God, don't don't come bringing your confusion before God. We have this tendency to want to, to clean all of the messiness up as we come to God. But notice that most scholars say, this is David here. David writing this psalm. David most likely on the run from from King Saul who is hunting him down. This maniacal King Saul who is enraged with jealousy that wants to stomp out David, wants to silence David. He's in a cave seeking refuge and all he has as he utters a prayer to God is question, 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 and question. Five of them to be exact. How long, oh Lord? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Uh, Many of us have a view of prayer to God and worship to God that it is inappropriate to bring to God such a questioning tone. And it's completely foreign to the Bible. Is completely foreign to the experience of many of the Psalms, the Psalms of Lament. It is not a sign of, faithful, of faithlessness to bring your questions before God, but rather Psalm 13 is an invitation to bring to God the rawness of your heart, the hurt of your circumstances, a ruthless honesty before God is always. A sign of faithfulness instead of false piety before God, where we're cleaning up our language here. David doesn't know where God is in this moment. In the midst of his trouble, he doesn't know how long his trouble is going to last. He doesn't know why God is allowing this to happen here. All of this uncertainty makes it feel as if God is far away from him and that he's turned away from David and has forgotten David in the midst of his circumstances here. And that was true for David. And it's been true for Christians for 2,000 years who walk down the cave of darkness at times. And you know something? that can also be true for you. that sometimes the best language that you can bring before God in prayer is the question, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will there, will, will there be evil that reigns in our nation, in our world? How long, O Lord? Or maybe to even be more personal, how long, O Lord, will I struggle with illness without any clear path toward healing. How long, O Lord, will I care for a loved one who I've longed to see whole and healed? How long, O Lord, will it be? How long, O Lord, will I pray for a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter to to come to their senses and and turn home to the faith that I've planted in them? How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, will I pray that I'll be able to decorate my own nursery and bring home the baby that I've prayed for for years. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? I pray for that spouse. That in every fiber of my being, that is the desire of my heart. How long, O Lord? God's big enough to handle your questions. God is sovereign enough to hear your questions. And maybe your question is an invitation into intimacy with God. It was for David in this passage. We live in a day and age where, where, where we don't want to ask the question, how long? We, we are successfully trying to eliminate all possible weights. I mean, just look around you. You go into a gas station. You don't wait for someone to check you out. You go into the self-serve check. And even more than that, you can, you can just pull something off the shelf and just walk out with it. And, and you've got your phone with you, and it'll just charge you because it takes it off. You don't have to wait in line anymore. You want the newest bestseller book? You don't have to go to the library. You don't have to put it on hold and wait for weeks for it to be able to come back in or somebody to bring it back to you instantaneously. You can order it, and right there in the back pocket on your phone, you can have the latest bestseller downloaded to you. And I would Imagine that you can feel the same pain that I can feel. If that takes 15 seconds, it was too long. Instantaneously. Snap of the finger. And probably the, 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 one, of the, one of the largest distances between us as God's creation and He as the creator, us as finite human beings and Him as the infinite God, is the way that we experience time. We experience it in two different planes, do we not? We exist in seconds. We exist in moments, hours, and days. And God's horizon is a horizon of years, decades, centuries, eternity. And that distance can oftentimes be one of the real challenges of being a follower of God is, is that God is not on your time schedule. He's not on my time schedule. God is never in a hurry. One of the famous preachers of centuries ago was a preacher by the name of Phillips Brooks who was in New England, and his disposition was one of just kind of calm, peaceful kind of guy. So one of his parishioners saw him, he was agitated, he was going back and forth, sort of pacing the church there. And, and, and one of the congregants said to him, uh, well, well uh, Dr. Brooks, what's the matter? And it was in that moment that Dr. Brooks turned to him and said, you know, the trouble is, is I'm in a hurry and God isn't. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to the difference between God's timetable and your timetable? If, if the answer to that is yes, and it probably is yes, then you're in good company because you're in the company of biblical characters. I can think of no better illustrative story than the story of Joseph himself starting in Genesis chapter 37. The God has his hand upon Joseph and he has a destination for Joseph to, to be about God's work to all the nations through bringing him to this prominent position in Egypt, but how he gets to that is a long and winding road. To get Joseph to that place of prominence and that position, Joseph will be betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, brought into a position of authority in Potiphar's house, falsely accused, thrown into prison, He's able to interpret dreams in prison. You remember this account here? He's able to interpret dreams. There's a cupbearer that has a dream. He interprets it. The cupbearer is leaving the prison as he's freed. And Joseph's last words to him is, don't forget me. When you leave, cupbearer's, oh yeah, I've got you. The next passage of Scripture tells us two years later, Joseph is still languishing in prison many scholars would tell us about a decade of his life is contained in these stories here. A lost decade, lost years, languishing in prison. But we're reminded through Joseph's story and we're reminded through scripture is that God is never late. Nor is God ever early. He's always right on time. And our timetable and God's timetable... It brings us to honest questions. And it is not a sin of disobedience or faithlessness. It actually, to bring those questions to God in prayer is the the only step truly that we can take forward with the brokenness of our heart and the brokenness of the world around us. But we don't just bring our questions before God. We turn to God for help even in the midst of our questions. Notice that. The psalm of lament here doesn't end with question marks. There's a turning point in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. It's a turning point here. You can circle it in verse 3. You see that word consider? One one way you can translate that from the original Hebrew language is to look. Look. This this is what David is saying in a cave. Look, God. Turn your face to my circumstances here. I don't know where you're looking, but look right here. And if you're a father, maybe you can relate. I've heard my children say that to me. I said it to my dad. There'd be something that would capture my attention. My my boys will will come up to me and say, hey, Dad, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. And and my mind can't quite get to their uh, excitement about the situation. I'm still in in, in sort of David land over here. And so what do I say in that moment? I say something like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. And they say, no, no, Dad, no, really, look. And this is not David with the wrong words, demanding God. No, th- this is David saying, Yahweh, my God, look, give me an answer. Show me light. This is a sign of faith. He is saying, I cannot do this without you. There are enemies all around me that will prevail. And what David is doing through his prayers, he is showing the tenacity of his faith. He is clinging to God when there's darkness all around him and he feels as if God is absent in this moment and things are not right. His, his answer in this moment isn't to blame God. It isn't to turn away from God. It actually is the, it's the opposite. He is trusting God. He is turning to God. Boy, it's a wonderful invitation. When, when we're flooded with questions... And when darkness is around us and there's difficulty that surrounds us, the enemy wants you to believe the lie that God has abandoned you in that situation. And there's a temptation for us in the midst of difficulty to move away from God and to not seek Him, but the Scripture tells us so clearly. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 29. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Or or, or think about James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, we we just sung this song. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full into his wonderful grace and the things of this earth. You remember what we sung? will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. So, so I invite you, as our Savior did, when he, when he faced the weight of the cross that was before him, the agony of, of all of humanity's sins that would be placed upon him. And we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, there, he is there and his friends are asleep. The darkness of sin is before him. The physical brutality of the cross is is down the road from him. And it's in this moment where he's he's dripping uh, drops of blood that he turns to him and says, not my will, but thy will be done. And so if you find yourself in the midst of darkness, you find yourself in the midst of difficulty, don't, don't run from God, turn to God. Don't blame God, but but trust God in the midst of this. And notice what this psalm does for us. It it paves a way of how we can worship God even when we do not have all the answers. Even when everything in our life isn't okay or everything in the world isn't okay. Notice that not only do we see that we can turn to God for help in the midst of our questions, that we can trust God even when we don't have all the answers. There there seems to be in this psalm just this huge emotional chasm between verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then we have this conjunction that abruptly stops the the flow in verse 5. But, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. This, This shows us how as Christians, when we pray to God and when we worship God, even when we do not have all the answers, he shows himself faithful to us by our step of faith when we lean upon him and we turn to him. Some of you can give testimony to this. In some of the saddest moments of your life. And, and, and some of the most uncertain moments of your life. And some of the most you know, trying moments where all of the questions were still around you. You chose in that moment through the Spirit of God in you to worship Him and to pray to Him. And you, you could say, you know, as, as, as real as, as that pastor is touching that table there. I knew He was with me. What can we do when we don't have all the answers? Well, we can turn to God in prayer. What can we do when we feel helpless and hopeless? Well, we can turn to God in prayer. We, we pray we pray the, the, the wonderful prayer of the Sermon on the Mount. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray for justice when there's injustice that is around. And we work to right wrongs to the Spirit of God. Why? Because Jesus has taught us to pray this. When we see heartache around us and we see the the sin and evil that is so real, we pray, and this isn't a cop-out. This is the best and the truest thing that we can do is to be on our knees and say, God, you have promised that you're near to the brokenhearted, and there are people that are brokenhearted now. And so would you provide them a peace that passes all understanding? And this is a step forward. This is a step of faith here, even when you do not have all the answers. David is showing us a way forward, and it is a way to trust God. Do you think that David in the midst of the cave had all of his five questions answered by the time he gets to verse five? Do you think everything was rectified in just a few moments? And the answer is no. But what David does this moment in this psalm is he shows us that in the midst of praying, in the midst of worship, and in the midst of turning to him, God has shown himself faithful. And he, he gazes upon God who is constant in the midst of the inconsistency of this world. Notice in verse 5, I have trusted in what? My circumstances? No. I can figure all this out? No. I've trusted in your steadfast love. that's two words that are translating one word out of the Hebrew. Some of you might can look at your Bible and in verse 5 you see covenantal love. Uh, Some of you will see loving faithfulness. They're always clumsy translations. They're always a couple of words or a couple of phrases. It's a beautiful Hebrew word, hesed, just five letters, that really, we do not have an English word to be able to sufficiently translate. Not one word. We've we got to join some words together. Because this is a love that will never let you down. This is a love that will never fail. This is a love that is always faithful. This is a love that endures. This, this is what David is trusting in. Is that God is a God who will never let you down. That God's love is always sure. It's always stable. Two weeks ago, I was, doing, I was officiating a, a wedding ceremony. And it, it's, it's one of the, the most beautiful privileges that I have as a pastor is to be so close to a bride and to a groom. In that moment of, of one of the most memorable moments of their life and to be able to, to utter vows that they're going to repeat, vows like for better, for worse, for sickness and health, to death do us par for richer, for poor. And in 20 years of officiating weddings, I've never had a groom nor a bride nuance or give disclaimers. I've never had one stop me in the middle of it and say, well, hey, look, let's be realistic here. I can give the health, but I can't give the death. I can give, hey, yeah, I'm good for the richer, not for the poor. I'm not signing up for that. But we all realistically know that the love that they're committing is not a perfect love. In contrast, in Psalm 13, what we are hopeful about is that God never loses his love toward us. It's, it's never something that he, 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 his attention goes somewhere else. It is a faithful covenantal, enduring through all of the imperfections and even the faithlessness of his followers. And so this is what David is clinging to. There's darkness all around him. He can't see a way out. And you know what he does? He holds on to God. And and that gives him hope because in this moment he realizes, you know something? I might not get out of this cave here, but there's hope beyond this cave. The darkness, it may not abate, and the light might not shine, but this I know there's a future ahead beyond my circumstances, and that future is in a sure God who will meet every need and right every wrong and heal every hurt and wipe away every tear. This is sure. This is steady. This is God's covenantal love. Years ago, I walked through with our boys the Narnia series, and you come to the end, and one of the most beautiful pictures— one of those beautiful pictures of where we're headed to and where our world is headed to. We are tempted in a week like this to think this is a runaway train that there is not a sure destination. and Who can stop it? Where is this headed to? And while we as Christians pray for justice and while we work for justice and, and while, while we do what God has given us uh, the ability to do as faithful women and men, yes and yes and yes and amen. We pray for and we work for that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But our ultimate hope rests in we know where this story is going. We, we know where this world is going. We know how this story is going to end. In, in Lewis's last battle, the last page, last paragraph, you get to the very end. And Lewis is describing as they move out of Narnia and they move to the future that is ahead for all of these characters that we've walked with through the series. And he says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. For us, this is the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after but for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever in which every chapter is better Than the one before. Do you hear that? Every chapter. Is better. Than the one before. The destination. Of every believer. Is this destination. The destination. Of the world in which we live in. Redeemed. A new heaven and a new earth. Even in the midst of a heavy week. Where pain is real. And evil is perfect. And grief seems to be unending, where things seem to be getting worse. You just feel this. There is hope because he gets the last word. There's hope because evil does not win out. There is hope because abuse does not endure. We have hope because we know how this story will end, where death will be no more. Neither there will be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. And we say to that, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let us pray.